Okay, I hope you enjoyed your lunch. And I hope that you are ready for our next, our next debate. Before I go ahead and introduce the proposition, um, I have an announcement to make, a little bit of bad news and good news. Um, the bad news is that Assistant Secretary Dave Stilwell is actually ill. Um, he is at the doctor as we speak and is not going to be able to give the, uh, the speech here this afternoon. Um, the two pieces of good news is that this speech will definitely be rescheduled, hopefully for next week, um, and he will deliver it here. Uh, we will find a time and we will send out an announcement. The other piece of good news is that the State Department, um, in their wisdom, decided not to leave us all high and dry. So they are going to send over a senior official uh, who is going to be making remarks and taking questions. I can't tell you who that is because it's going to be off the record, and that was the condition, because this really is a last-minute um, uh, arrangement that we have made, but I can tell you that it's going to be somebody who is authoritative, who is senior, and who is worth listening to. But it will be completely off the record. It's not going to be Chatham House. So for all of you people who are in the media and those, of course, who have cameras, including, unfortunately, those who are watching um, online uh, live, uh, we, will be sh we will be closing up at about 4 o'clock, uh, our online broadcast, and we will then uh, have uh, at 4.15 that uh, speech um, and engagement and, and uh, Q&A will all be off the record. So with that, we're going to move to the next proposition. Um, and uh, this is terrific because when my team and I were formulating our propositions about four or five months ago, we talked about whether we should have a proposition on the trade war, and some members of my team said, well, what if it's all solved by then? We no longer had a trade war. I said, nah, this is in the bag, guys. <laughs> we are still going to have that trade war going. I wished that it was resolved, but unfortunately, I was correct. Um, but I think that the, uh, the formulation of this proposition um, is um, perhaps even more interesting today than it was a few months ago. Um, and the proposition, again, please pick up your uh, your clickers and vote uh, while, I, while I introduce it. It is the U.S. economy is better positioned than China's to weather a long-term trade conflict. The Trump administration has put trade at the center uh, of its strategy with, uh, with, with China and, and to some extent with other countries. Um, nowhere has this approach been more on display than in this ongoing trade conflict between the world's two largest economies. In an effort to reduce the U.S. trade deficit with China um, and address a myriad of problems in U.S.-China trade and um, in economic relations, the Trump administration has already implemented several rounds of tariffs on Chinese imports, and Beijing has responded with reciprocal tariffs. The conflict has resulted in bilateral trade losses totaling in the tens of billions of dollars. China appears to be confident that the Communist Party's tight grip on everything from state banks to media outlets better positions it to withstand the pressure. And President Trump maintains that China's economic problems are growing, and therefore that Xi Jinping needs a deal more than he does. So to debate which economy is better positioned to weather a long-term conflict, 
I am very pleased to introduce our uh, speakers. To my right is uh, Dr. Christopher Balding, who is now an associate professor uh, at the Fulbright University in Vietnam. He's a former professor at HSBC Business School um, at uh, Beijing University um, at the graduate school there. And then arguing against the proposition to my left is Dr. Yi Xiong, who is an economist at China Deutsche Bank. And I hope I've given you all a lot of opportunity, um, except you, you stole my pen earlier, if you don't. <laughs> so I'll have to get you another one, so I have to write it down, sorry. Um, so we are at, yes, 63% uh, and no is, the U.S. economy better positioned is yes is 63% and no is now 30, 64, 33. Okay, going to give you another 15 seconds to go ahead and place your votes and then we are going to start our arguments and we will see if that changes over the course of our debate. Okay, we're going to close it there. 62%, 35%. Okay, and we are going to start with you, Chris Balding. I'll give you back your pen. So thank you very much for- You have to turn it on. Thank you very much for having me today. Very excited to be here. Um, at the outset, I should say that I'm not going to uh, kind of frame my remarks a little bit. The first is that I'm not going to discuss politics. Uh, this is going to be purely an economics-focused uh, uh, talk about uh, which economy is better placed. Part of that is due to the fact that we could receive a tweet while I'm talking that changes everything. So for the moment, for my talk, I'm going to stick strictly to the economics. Um, the other thing that I'm going to do is stick to a time frame that we're looking at of about, let's say, six months to three years. Um, so this is going to exclude factors that are longer term, say 10 or 20 years, that might be introduced, such as demographics. So this kind of uh, gives us a, a little bit better framework to work within. And then the last thing is, is that I'm going to stick to official data as much as possible, especially when we're talking about China. Um, it's very easy to discuss unofficial data and, let's say, um, some of the anecdotes and uh, estimates that we might have. Um, so what is, the, what is the outlook for the U.S. economy over the mid-term? Uh, mid um, households are in good shape, um, even though there is this myth uh, for quite some time about uh, the profligate U.S. household coming out of the global financial crisis, um, they are actually in very good shape. Um, the savings rate is now in probably the middle high single digits. Um, they have actually been slowly deleveraging since the global financial crisis. Um, wages are growing at their fastest uh, rate in uh, probably a few decades. Um, employment is up and debt is down. Um, this gives us a very good picture of the state of uh, U.S. households. Um, it, their spending is continuing to grow relatively robustly. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of evidence, at least within the household sector, that, uh, that the U.S. household sector is under pressure. Um, second of all, corporations are in generally good shape. Um, they have generally moderate uh, debt rates. Cash balances are very high. Um, probably the worst thing that you can say about uh, corporations for the most part is that there is uh, somewhat of a lack of relative demand that might be uh, suppressing their profits somewhat. But generally speaking, um, U.S. corporations are in pretty good shape overall. 
Um, the U.S. fiscal position is not good. I think we all know that. That's something that uh, any uh, congressional staff here might want to work on. Um, but generally speaking, that's not going to have any near-term uh, significant impact on how the U.S. is able to weather the, uh, the trade war. Um, that may have an impact uh, longer term, um, and it may have an impact to respond of, of the U.S. to respond to any downturn in the broader economy, but that doesn't seem to have much of an impact on how the U.S. will be able to weather the trade war. So overall, the U.S. is growing on long-term trend. I know this is probably about the unsexiest, least headline-grabbing thing that you'll hear all day, but the U.S. is growing on long-term trend plus or minus statistical noise. Um, if you look at uh, U.S. growth since the global financial crisis, it's basically been growing at 2% a year. And uh, last year, when it was growing at almost 3%, that was largely due to the fiscal stimulus from tax cuts. This year, we've returned to pretty much that long-term trend, and there's not a whole lot of reason to believe that 2020 is going to be a whole lot different. That may not be the most uh, headline-grabbing if we're talking about the trade war. It's not going to make Republicans all that happy, and it's not going to make Democrats happy, but the reality is, is that uh, you can probably expect more of the same going forward for the U.S. economy. For the Chinese economy, things are a little bit more interesting. Um, if we look at, uh, even though it is 6%, as, as it will always be, if we look at Chinese households, there are significant problems within uh, the economy. You have, in Chinese terms, relatively stagnating wages. Um, depending on uh, if you are a Chinese uh, data expert, probably the biggest black hole in all of Chinese data is labor and wage data. Um, even, uh, even some of Chinese senior leadership was complaining a couple years ago about just how bad Chinese labor and wage data is. Um, depending on some unofficial uh, data that, that you can look at, um, it's in uh, w uh, wages are going up in the low single digits. Um, there's even reports of uh, you know, pressures on unemployment. Um, but generally speaking, uh, at the, I think let's say let's be let's be conservative in our estimates there and just say that it is not growing as fast as consumers would like. Um, I think the bigger pressure within Chinese households, however, is on the debt side. Um, Chinese debt levels are now, um, depending on which estimate you choose to believe, as high as 120% of annual household income, and they're continuing to grow at about, uh, that number is continuing to grow at about 15 to 17% annually right now, which is roughly, let's say, in, in round numbers, maybe three times uh, the, rate, uh, the growth rate, rate rate of wages. Um, this is putting a lot of pressure on consumers. This is putting a lot of pressure on the primary asset price of real estate. Um, and just to put uh, their cushion in perspective, even though there is this mythical 45% household savings rate, probably the biggest problem that you have is that most of this has been plowed into real estate, and so the amount of liquid financial asset savings available to Chinese households is actually much closer to Mexico and Russian levels of liquid financial assets. Um, this basically tells us that Chinese households would not be able to absorb any type uh, of significant shocks to their earning uh, potential. 
If we look at Chinese corporates, um, it's actually probably slightly better than it was a couple years ago, but there are significant pressures um, in the corporate sector. Um, borrowing uh, still continues to generally, in most sectors, outpace uh, revenue. Um, if you factor in declining, uh, declining men, uh, industry costs or industry prices, this is putting a lot of pressure on uh, firms' ability to service debt. Um, this is generally predictive of what we, what we consider uh, pretty weak balance sheets. Um, debt metrics such as, uh, such as debt to equity, um, those types of metrics have generally stagnated, slightly improved over the, over the past two years, but they, but they are also, uh, they've not uh, significantly rebounded and they're, they're, there's questions about that data. Um, this generally gives us uh, some concern about their level of the ability to withstand the longer-term pressures on, uh, on corporate operations. Um, the government, in official terms in China, um, has a very sound fiscal position. Um, uh, uh, central government debt is around 40% of GDP. Um, local government debt is around 20% of GDP. Um, however, this needs to be taken with a, with a real grain of salt. Um, if we look at uh, local government financing vehicles and off-balance sheet operations, um, according to the IMF, the, uh, the, general, uh, the general government deficit in China would be anywhere from about 10 to 15 percent. Um, and in, in general terms, most investors in China consider anything that is SOE, local government financing vehicle, they essentially consider it as state-backed. So even though it may not be explicitly a, a state debt, that debt by investors in China, by banks, by bondholders, by households, it is considered to be state-backed. So we need to essentially uh, lump a lot of that onto the state, uh, onto the state uh, debt level. I think probably the bigger issue, however, for, uh, for uh, the Chinese corporate sector is the banks. And the banks are under um, enormous, enormous pressure. Um, in roughly, let's say, 2017, um, they tried to execute um, uh, essentially a big switch, moving as a significant number of assets from the shadow banking, what is known as the shadow banking sector, off balance sheet onto uh, official bank balance sheets. Um, so basically, in those, uh, for about a couple years straight now, shadow banks have essentially seen no uh, overall asset growth, but all of those assets that are coming due are essentially being rolled onto bank balance sheets. Now, this creates a significant problem in the sense that uh, bank deposits are not growing in line with that increase in asset base. So what that means is, is that new loans are, gro are growing significantly faster than new deposits. This has been going on for about three or four years now, and you've seen the, uh, the loan-to-value ratio of uh, banks basically go from about, let's say, in the low 60% up to now we're almost at 80%. Um, and what that means is, is that banks are going to need significant recapitalization in the coming years. Um, and you've already seen this with smaller banks. Um, uh, generally speaking, you're talking rural uh, credit cooperatives, uh, city-level banks, uh, county-level banks, things like that. Um, but this is basically telling us that, uh, that there's going to be a major recapitalization of banks due within the next couple of years. It may not come all in one fell swoop. It may be parsed out over a number of years, um, but you've already seen some of that coming. Um, one of the other things here that is on this, um, 
uh, on the radar of banks here is especially of the major SOE banks. Um, they have major Basel III requirements coming up, which are going to fall just outside, generally speaking, of our three-year time window that I gave at the beginning, um, and are probably looking at uh, really seeing the, this impact from Basel III capital requirements in about the four to five-year time range. But you're literally talking in the hundreds of billions of dollars of new capital that is going to be required by Chinese banks, and they simply aren't generating that capital internally that is going to allow them to self-fund that. Um, one of the things that you've seen throughout the first, uh, throughout most of 2019, is you have seen large numbers of Chinese banks going to the markets asking for additional capital top-ups using a pretty wide variety of uh, creative financing mechanisms, um, different bonds, sometimes secondary offerings, things of this nature. Um, and this is basically telling us that the banks don't have the capital that they need to continue going. One of the things uh, over the past couple of years in the banking sector that has happened is, is that uh, the Chinese, uh, is that the banking regulator in an effort to uh, continue to pump credit into the Chinese market um, has lowered the reserve requirement for banks. The flip side of that is that the banks, if that reserve requirement is not, uh, is not lowered, are going to fall beneath that. And that would be extremely embarrassing and very problematic on many levels. Um, so the, the, the fundamental issue with the banks is, is that they are enduring a lot of stress. Um, they have significant problems going forward. And when the economy is so widely dependent on banks which are so stressed, that is going to create significant problems. Um, economically, um, and I will delve a little bit here into unofficial data. Um, economically, it's very, very difficult to see how the Chinese economy right now is growing at 6%. Um, if you look at, uh, if you look at uh, the consumption numbers, even though retail sales numbers are officially at, uh, eight, uh, I think, 8%, um, most individual products on the consumption side are growing in the low single digits if they're growing at all. Uh, many major consumer areas are, are, are experiencing significantly negative growth. Cars, cell phones, um, electronics, durable goods um, are, are having significantly negative growth. Um, food uh, it continues to grow in the low single digits like we would, like we would expect. Um, but, the, but what we're basically seeing is, is that it's very difficult to see how this retail sales number is arrived at. If you look at industry, it's a little bit better, um, but there's some key caveats. The primary area where Chinese industry is growing um, is in uh, heavy industry. Um, you're not seeing a lot of, you're not seeing a lot of, uh, let's say, fundamental demand. Um, so uh, real estate, uh, land sales, things like that, continue to uh, continue to grow relatively robustly. Let's say in the high uh, single digits, maybe even the low single digits, depending on uh, the, or the low double digits, depending on the specific category. Um, so this this tells us where the growth is coming from. It also tells us that there are much broader problems because it's it's much a, it's uh, much easier easier to push real estate sales if, uh, if consumer credit is going up by 15 to 18% a year. Um, and that's where the growth is coming that is driving these, uh, these industry sales. 
I think the last thing that is, uh, that is really important, um, it, what's happening here is FX. Um, even though Chinese reserves are officially at 3.1 uh, trillion, I think there is a lot of very credible evidence that basically indicates that that dollar position is much tighter than what is officially reported. Um, anecdotally, uh, when you talk to businessmen in, uh, in China, what you will basically hear is the only people that can commit to US dollar purchases these days are SOEs and then you have to wait six months to get paid. Um, so there's a lot of indication that there's a lot more tightness in the U.S. dollar market uh, and being able to access dollars if you're in China. Um, as part of that, um, what, is, what has been happening with the trade war and the tariffs is that the U.S. share of, um, of the Chinese surplus has started to fall. That means if China is going to generate the overall surplus that it needs with its ongoing leakages of U.S. dollars out of China, that surplus is going to have to come from other countries. Going forward, it's going to be very interesting to see if other countries are willing to become deficit countries to China to fund uh, the surplus that China needs to go forward. Um, a couple of quick points before I uh, finish up. Um, number one, there, uh, there's that old saying about life, death, and 6% Chinese GDP. But I think we need to be cautious in looking at that going forward and look at what is the state of Chinese households, what are the state of Chinese firms. And I think it is quite indicative that there is uh, much greater weakness within Chinese households and firms than there are uh, and their ability to absorb shocks than there is um, in the United United States. I think it's also important to note uh, that the Chinese economy is much more dependent on the U.S. economy, especially uh, to be able to generate that surplus where they generate hard currency to make investments overseas and purchase capital goods that they need. And I think the one thing that is, that is very important to note that I think has been overlooked by commentators on both sides is when we talk about uh, the trade deal, one of the things that is so important is it's very hard for Chairman Xi to make a, uh, let's say, more comprehensive trade deal because if he was to agree to things like eliminating subsidies and protections, that would quite truly probably be catastrophic for a lot of Chinese industry. Um, and we're not just talking, you know, you're putting a few people out of, uh, out of work, you're talking about major firms and industries collapsing almost in mass if they were if they were to do that and so it's 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 really in a lot of ways asking almost the unaskable that this is what would happen to the Chinese economy and what that would mean for uh, for chairman Xi okay arguing against the proposition please issue Good afternoon. Um, thank you, Bonnie, for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here, and um, I'm very glad to meet Professor Balding in person, follower of you on Twitter. And um, so the, the thesis we have this afternoon is about whether U.S. and China can weather a long-term trade conflict. And I was interested to learn that um, Professor Balding defined long-term as three years, because as we at the IMF usually think anything within five years Medium term, one year is short term, and long term is usually a, usually a 10 year issue. And that the trade war starting from last year has already lasted for about two years. So another, just another one year of trade war, I would say you'll be on the optimistic camp of how long the trade war could last. But um, just, um, just review, I think 
One thing would be good to do is just look at what happened over the past two years, because two years is not a short term anymore, it's a medium term issue. So I will give you my observation of what the trade war has done to the economy of both China and the US in the past two years. And first, starting with China, I have three numbers to share. The first number is 5%. What does that mean? If we put China's total industrial production of all industries together as 100, 5% of that 100 production is related to U.S. demand. And when I say related, I mean it's both directly, which is China's exports to the U.S., and indirectly, which is, are the upstream industries that support these downstream industries who later export to the U.S. So that exposure of total China industry to U.S. demand is 5%. And the counterpart of that 5% is 95%, and that 95% can be split into about 70% that is supporting China's domestic demand and the 25% that is China's exports to the else of the world. So that is the relative scale of what is the importance of U.S. demand in this trade war for China. And if you look at what happened over the past two years, that 95%, you cannot find any visible impact of trade war on that. The impact is only focused on that 5%, and specifically those have been tariffed under that 5%. If you put it together, we see about a 25% a decline of China's exports to the US. So that's, even for that 5%, it's not disappearing. It's just a 20% decline. So that is first number I want to share about how the trade war has done to China's exports. And the second number, again, is 5%, but it's a different 5%. That is what we observe from U.S. customs by how much we see Chinese exporters reduced their prices upon tariff. And this number we see again 5%. Now, remind you that um, the tariff is 25%. So the counterpart of this 5% is 20%. That 20% is tariffed but not paid by Chinese exporters. That means someone in the U.S. will have to pay that tariff, either the U.S. producer or the, or the consumer who paid that 20%. And the third number I want to share is an even smaller number, 3%. And what is that? 3% is what we see, the growth of new FDI inflows into China in the first 10 months of 2019, this year. Of course, 3% is not some growth we should be proud of, but we need to put it in context. The context is that we have a global FDI slowdown. The global FDI has been declining for three years, according to UN's data. And in that environment, you also have the foreign companies in China. They're not really doing well in 2019 and because they either serve the Chinese domestic economy, which is slowing, and also or they export from China to, uh, to, to other countries. About 40% of China's exports are done by uh, companies with foreign interest in it. And um, the, both parts are not doing well. In fact, their profit declined in 2019. But even with that declining profit, we're still seeing a positive growth of FDI inflows into China. And despite that, in the world, we are seeing a decline in FDI. So I think that is really a firm rejection of the hypothesis that trade war is going to make China unattractive to investors. What we are seeing is that they may be investing less somewhere else in the world, but they are still putting their money into China. Yeah, so that three numbers, I think, combined together, tell more or less the same big picture story, and that is the impact of trade war so far on China's economy is really not that big. And it may sound counterintuitive, because China's economy has been slowing a lot for the past two years. 
But if you look really in detail, and um, Professor Bonnie also just discussed, the, the reason for that slowdown is mostly coming from domestic demand, but not external demand. And the reason for that slowdown in domestic demand is that China is in a campaign to deleverage, to make sure that um, uh, there was a lot of accumulation of debt and leverage in the, in the economy. So starting from late 2017, there's a big campaign to deleverage on the government that the local financial platforms should not borrow as much as they have before to deleverage the corporate sector, some of those um, un, uh, un, uh, um, un, uh, I would say, uh, uh, borrowings that are just uh, shouldn't happen during the expansion of the financial sector should, be, should slow down. And we have some big companies running into problems in these two years. And also the financial sector needs to be deleveraged. We're seeing some restructuring happening already with the smaller banks, also some big financial institutions. So that deleveraging does, does have an impact on China's short-term growth. But it also makes the growth more sustainable in the longer term. Um, that's the China side of the story. And now we come to the US. And what we're seeing in the US, again, there's a slowdown in the US from above 3% growth last year to around 2% this year. So even that decline of the, the, the growth number is bigger than what we see in China's number, which is from 6.8 to 6%. And we also see that the Fed has turned easing again here in the US. The same PBOC is also easing in China. But um, if you look at the statement of the Fed, usually cite uncertainty, which is broadly understood, understood by the market, that which mostly coming from the trade war uncertainty as their reason for cutting the interest rate, even though the economy is still growing at 2%. Potential growth, but they see that there's a big risk for it to slow down fur further. And if you compare the, type, the, the amount of easing Fed has done and the amount of easing PBOC has done, uh, one way to compare is if you look at the yield curve, China's Treasury yield curve is about here, the US about here, they're both upward sloping at the late last year. And then when they both enter easing, you have them both coming down, but the gap has really widened a lot. And by the way, you have the US at some time having an inversion of the yield curve. So that change in the yield curve and this widening gap gives you some evidence maybe that Fed is actually easing more than PBOC for the past year or so. And why? Well, the reason could just be that um, uh, from both central bank assessing an economic slowdown, but the Fed is even more worried than China about the slowdown of the economy. So it doesn't really, at least I think we can conclude that, um, that there's no evidence for the past year or so that China's economy has been negatively impacted by tri trade war more than the US or maybe somewhere anywhere else in the world. So that is the assessment of um, what happened, but I think um, uh, we're discussing really a long-term story, and if you look at um, the trade war, if, this, if you also call that between US and Japan, that lasted really for more than a decade. So we really should spend, expand our time horizon to a, to a, to a, to a longer, in, a short, in, in the long term, and I would quote um, from economist Paul Krugman that productivity is not everything, but in the long term, it is almost everything. So if we were to really think about what is going to, which country is going to last longer in this trade war, we need to think about what is, of, what is the impact of this trade war on productivity. Again, let's start from China. What is really driving China's productivity growth in the past 40 years? What has China done right? And there are, if you ask different economists, there will be different answers. Some say it's really opening up that you have China having this exchange of trade, investment, and even migration of people that bring knowledge into China that has led to the productive growth that we're seeing in China. Some other people will tell you it is competition, 
because China has introduced a market-based economy. And in that market-based economy, companies compete with each other. And you have the inefficient companies getting kicked out of the market, and those being kicked out, including both state-owned enterprises and private enterprises. And just as we speak, every year about 7 million companies are newly established in China each year, and more than half of those cannot survive for more than three to four years. So that is how harsh the competition environment is we're seeing right now in China. And that kind of competition really gives a boost to productivity because it's only the productive ones that can survive in this competition. And the third reason is, some say, it would be that it's the government. And um, there's also truth to it because if you think about the role of the government is providing public goods and services to the economy. And the Chinese government has been doing a very good job in providing not only the hard infrastructure, but also the broad healthcare, basic healthcare system. China's life expectancy is only two years behind the US with only a fraction of the cost and um, a much bigger population. And also public education that yes, the best schools as of today in China are still public schools. You also have them providing this kind of income redistribution and to alleviate poverty, and that really helps the economy to grow. You have people being, more, being richer and consuming more, boosting the economy. And lastly, I think it is never, it is, um, it is, we should always never forget that a safe and stable society is really a, a foundation for long-term sustained growth. So those kind of things the government has to do is also a good thing for, for China's growth. So there are many things we can, we can say, and you can really not tell which one is the most important. But what you can say for sure is there are certain things that are not good for China's growth. Because China hasn't done everything right. If they have, then China has, should have been already much richer than they are today. First, China did not grow fast because it provided a lot of subsidies to SOEs. And everyone of us knows that if an SOE especially receives large amounts of subsidy, you're, it's guaranteed to be, an, to be an inefficient company, and it is not giving productive growth. Second, we, China also did not grow because of unfair competition practices. Again, any industry, if there's practices such as um, entry barriers, um, like um, picking winners or giving favorable treatment to maybe those politically connected companies, that also is the recipe set for low productivity. And I think a good example would be China's auto sector, because this is a sector where you have a high entry barrier, you have a limit on foreign shareholding, you also have high tariffs blocking the imports of, uh, of, of cars. And for many years, Chinese consumers really suffered from that they need to pay much expensive prices for lower quality cars. And even as of today, China's car industry just cannot really compete with other car industries in the world. So that is just an example that this is not giving China some uh, productivity. Uh, one more thing, IP protection. Now, there are arguments saying that for some countries that uh, you don't protect, you let people copy, it will be good for growth, and which is maybe not entirely wrong if you look at the economic history of growth of not only China but many countries. But I think we can also agree that at some stage, when the economy reaches a certain stage, that innovation becomes really the driver for growth. IP protection becomes a good thing to have. And I think we can more or less agree that China has more or less passed that stage. And for now, we really need IP protection for China to innovate, to gain productivity.
You must have noticed that these factors I mentioned just happen to be on the list of U.S. key demand in the trade war with China. And actually what we're seeing is for the past year or two, we're seeing really an acceleration of progress in China on many of these fronts. We have an opening up of, 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 of the economy and, and um, cutting subsidies on, on certain, certain items. And I think that is maybe not a coincidence because of the trade war, that it gives the pressure for China to implement these reforms. So if China in a trade war, the result is with an open mind, open up further and implement all these reforms, the net result in the end is it's going to benefit the Chinese economy in the longer term, whereas the tariff, how much negative effect it would have, is just a short-term shock. It doesn't really last in the, in the, in the long run. Now, again, let's come back to the U.S. economy, what it is doing. So I think first we should give credit to the U.S. economy that is it is really has been growing very fast in terms of pr productivity also for the past 40 years. And it is that um, undoubtedly at the forefront of global innovation. And this is again due to many factors, thanks to a free economy, human capital, education system, the best universities in the world, and also institutions such as a financial market that is really conducive that for commercializing innovation. And also I think there's some policies involved and one of those Big good example is the U.S. open migration policy that you really allow the, the best talent in the world to come to U.S. to work and de deliver productivity growth. And I will use that just an example of my favorite company, Google. Sorry, Baidu, I don't really like U.S. Google. But you see, it is founded by an American together with a Russian immigrant is currently CEO'd by an Indian. And this really gives an example of how these immigrants help improve productivity growth growth in the U.S. So with these advantages, but we also see some flaws in the U.S. economy, and I would think the most critical and important one is inequality, that the system seems to deliver continued uh, increase in inequality. You have the people, the wage growth stagnating, especially for the low-skill labor. You have a widening income gap between the top 1% or even 0.1% with the 50, down 50%. You have the social mobility decreasing. It's getting harder for people from the lower income bracket to move to the higher bracket. And you also have the issue of the, a big financial crisis that was not able to prevent uh, in the first place. And also after it happened, there was not sufficient uh, policy being taken to shelter the, really the poor being hit by the financial crisis. So I think the list can go longer, but we can all agree that there are certain elements in the US system that can be improved. The, the problem is that what we are seeing in the US is it's not really tackling those problems. Actually, if, if we look to Europe, they also have been hit, but um, the, with the social safety net and all other policies helping the low-skilled labor, we don't really see such a devastating impact on, U on, on Europe's inequality for the past 10, 20 years. And at the same time, we're also not seeing that kind of uh, backlash against China in Europe compared to what we saw here in the US for the past two, three years. Um, but, but here in the U.S., it seems that the recipe has all go against um, uh, the policy of protectionism of, against China, but not really dealing with the domestic man. It's really unfortunate that for the political camps here in the U.S., the only thing they can agree in consensus is on 
their attitude against China rather than what they really need to do on addressing these domestic issues. And you can argue that part of this inequality is created by China rising, that you have a massive amount of labor supply enter into the global market that has created a gap of widening between the, between the different skilled labor in the U.S. But I would argue that is also not the only reason why we are seeing a widened income gap. And um, it really requires U.S. to do take domestic measures to address this to keep productivity from continue to grow. But if we are really in a mode of long-term trade war, that means we're seeing in the U.S. continue to scapegoat China as really the reason for the probably the, 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 its economic problem rather than addressing the domestic issues. And you have China in this trade war doing, keeping an open mind and doing all these reforms to give the productivity growth. And in that scenario, I would just say that I think China is in a better position than the U.S. to weather a long-term trade war. So we're now going to give each of our speakers five minutes to um, reply or respond to the other. First you, Chris. So I apologize if this is not the most uh, the best debate, as I actually agree with some of what uh, what my esteemed colleague said. But I will maybe uh, expand on them a little bit for for my own purposes. So one of the things is is as I listen to people in the United States talk about the trade war and you know Chicken Little, the sky is falling, and I and I and I try to convince them. In reality, this is the you know the trade war is is little more than a rounding error in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give slightly round numbers. These are not exact. I, I, I would need to look these exact numbers up to, to tell you the exact numbers. But let's assume uh, in 2018, um, China exported $500 billion worth of goods to the United States. I think it was like 470 or something like that, but work with me. So let's assume this year that they were going to grow 10%. So they, they were going to export 550 billion, okay? Um, but because of the tariffs, they actually only export 450 billion. So there's a hundred billion dollar wedge. They would have exported 550, now they export 450, so there's a hundred billion dollar difference as to what they would have done, okay? Um, in reality, that number is probably close to about 40 billion dollars, okay? It, once you break the numbers down. It's probably in the neighborhood of about 30 to 50 billion dollars. A 30 to 50 billion dollar difference in the size of the Chinese economy in the size of the U.S. economy, irrelevant. I mean, I, I hate to sound, again, like, like the growth story, I hate to sound so like blasé about it, but $30 billion to $50 billion in, against these two economies is, is, is irrelevant. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter. There are specific firms and there are specific industries that are, that are, that are suffering significantly. But as a macroeconomic story, they don't really matter. So when my esteemed colleague says that only 5% of Chinese industrial production goes to the United States, yes, it's absolutely correct. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not having a major impact on either economy. There are specific firms and industries that are suffering, but as an economy, it has very little impact. The second thing I would like to uh, build upon is, uh, is the FDI story. Um, the 3% that, that my esteemed colleague mentions, that is about the long-term trend for China since the global financial crisis. 
I forget the exact number. I think I calculated it once at like 3.3 or 3.4%. But that's about the long-term average into China for uh, since the global financial crisis. Okay, So when we talk about, and again, I know it's a completely unsexy story, but when we talk about this trade war, everything is continuing almost as if nothing had changed. That's really what's happening. FDI is continuing into China at about the same rate. The US is continuing to grow at about the same rate. And basically, I think, and this gets to, I think, what is the bigger story and what is the focus of, uh, of, of the Trump administration and what I think was kind of touched upon in one of the previous sessions is I think what you are really seeing is, is you're seeing a separation of where trade happens. The FDI that is going into China is not for trade purposes. It is to target the domestic Chinese market. The firms that are leaving China are to target the US and, and uh, market. Okay, so you're really seeing essentially a fracturing, a division between firms and where they are putting operations that are going to target specific geographic locations. It should be emphasized, this is not a major shift from historical patterns. A long, for a long time, investment into China has been, by MNCs, has been primarily to target the Chinese market. The bulk of export that, is, that, is, that comes from China is by, is by locally owned Chinese firms. It's not by MNCs, okay? So, you know, when, when a car company goes to China, they're not exporting cars back to the United States. A little bit, but very little of that. Most of that investment to build cars in China is to target the Chinese market. Okay, and that's just that's just economic geography. They go to where there's large centers of population. They build something for that for that geographic radius that makes it economically competitive. Okay, so one of the things is is yes, he's he's entirely right. That's that's essentially what we've seen I think for years, and I think this hits one of the major themes of the trade war, is that the trade war is simply accelerating or placing additional pressure on pre-existing pressures. When we talk about things like, well, t-shirt makers were already leaving China because of wage pressures, the Trump administration placing tariffs on garments and textiles simply accelerates an existing trend. It doesn't start anything new, it just, puts, it just steps on the gas of what is already happening. So in a way, we need to, we need to put a lot of this uh, in, per, in perspective. Um, I think one issue, however, which hasn't been widely appreciated um, is, and this is where I will draw a little bit of a disagreement with my esteemed colleague, um, is when we talk about all of these reforms um, that China is making. I think the reality is, is that China is closing up much more. Um, the first, uh, when we talk about the reforms, the primary reforms that they're undertaking are in the financial services sector. Why are they undertaking uh, reforms in the financial services sector? U.S. dollars. They need U.S. dollars. They need capital inflows into local government bonds. They need capital inflows into the stock market. They need those capital inflows to balance their in and out uh, dollar flows. That is the that's the primary that is the primary service sector that or that's the primary industrial sector where that's happening. And the primary reason is is because those are accompanied with U.S. dollars. Um, there's been some uh, there's been some nibbling around the edges um, in other industries, but uh, those are not um, quite as large as they as they are in the financial services sector. If we look at if we look at other areas, one of the things that is very striking about Chinese trade this year is that imports into China are down significantly across the board, not just the United States, 
every geographic, every, almost every product sector is down significantly. Why is that? Because if your exports aren't growing fast, the only way for you to generate that surplus is to squeeze your imports even further. The best example that we've seen of this is there's been a shift to domestic iron ore producers, um, which is one of the major line items of all Chinese imports, away from much lower priced um, Australian and Brazilian iron ore um, into Chinese iron ore. Why is that? Even though it costs about 20 to 25% more, you don't have to spend US dollars to purchase Australian iron ore. Um, and we see this pattern beginning in other major industrial sectors where they want to target lowering their import bill. Um, we've seen this in, chip, in the chip sector. We, we're starting to see this in uh, the battery sector for electric vehicles and things like that. I mean, think about it this way. If China can lower its, its, uh, its oil and gas bill um, because they're essentially burning coal to power batteries, that is a major release uh, of pressure on their FX. So I will stop. Okay, he's shown five minutes. Okay. Um, yeah, I will take this opportunity to um, address the uh, the more of the six month to three year outlook for for China. And um, one thing always interests me is that you, if you want to be bearish on China, usually there are just three things you need to do. First, you claim a certain sector is in trouble. Two, you claim the official data is fake. And third, you claim I have some anecdotal evidence. So that was the easy way to really short on China, and I really don't know how to argue with that kind of um, argument, but uh, I will still continue to resort on the official data uh, because um, that this, this is, you, can, you, you just can't argue with that, right? So on what things, how things are looking on, 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 on China, so first starting with the 6% growth, that whether it is really this high or, or not. And um, you look at retail sales, it's about 6, 8, 9% growth too, but that is really the good sales. And we all know that the big driver of China's growth right now and um, going to into the future is not going to be goods or services. It's the services sector that has been expanding and that has been taking a continued bigger share of the economy. And also, it is not exports that lead China's growth model, because it's not that because China is becoming more closed, but just because the world does not have the capacity to, to receive continued rapid growth of China's exports. And it's really the domestic demand in China that is the big driver of China's growth. And um, there's still a vast income gap within China. And um, if you look at the average income level at the lower tier cities, that is 60% of the population, their income level are about 10 to 15 years behind Beijing and Shanghai. And if you, in, in constant price terms, would be equivalent, equivalent to the Japan's income in the early, early 1970s and the Western world's income maybe pre-World War II. So that is really the income level you're seeing. The huge potential of growth in China lies over there. And it is there where you see the growth of both sales and also the services that is driving China's economy's um, growth. And um, I would say the number I'm seeing is pretty consistent with the 6%. Um, I don't see a, really a big error margin over there. And also one thing is that just Alibaba. They, their sales continue to grow about 25% each year. Of course, they're gaining market share, but that continued growth also gave you some, just some evidence of that is the demand there. And you have Pinduoduo, which is a different e-commerce platform that specifically target the lower end cities and rural areas. They took them three years to become China's third largest e-commerce platform. 
That just shows how demand is growing so fast in those regions. So that is really the growth, the, the growth driving, uh, the big engine for China's growth. Where you don't see growth is, of course, exports and, um, of course, government investment because deleveraging, because there's already so many debt that I fully agree with Professor uh, Boulding that the government cannot really borrow more and continue this boost to growth. That's why they slow down and we're seeing the, the slowdown of growth. So even think of a longer term, I would think China's potential growth will definitely slow down because both investment and exports will not grow as fast as before. But the consumption driver is still there. And, um, and um, in 10 years' time, even, I think 4 to 5% potential growth for China is entirely possible. Now, coming to the, to the banks, I think um, the, the crucial thing is that China has really, really worked, uh, working, be, be, be working with very high NPL for the past two decades. At the beginning of 2000, China's NPL ratio is at between 30 to 40 percent of total loans, and those is really the big banks that are in problem. What we are seeing right now is mostly problem with the smaller banks. The big banks are okay, and even the medium-sized banks also look okay. And lastly, on subsidies, if China really take reforms on SOEs by reducing subsidies, of course there will be a big shock to the economy. But that also brings back the memory of what China had in the 1990s. There's a massive shutdown of SOEs. Actually, we are seeing some SOE default right now as we speak. And, and, um, but what really happened after those 1990s reform is it created a longer term period for China to enjoy rapid growth. And I'll be happy to see big SOE reform of sacrificing the growth in the short term really to benefit growth in the longer term. I'll stop here. Thank you. All right, terrific. We have 15 minutes for Q&A before we vote again. Uh, so uh, we'll look to our economists in the audience or those with an interest in the, in the issue of whether the U.S. or the Chinese economy is better positioned to uh, weather a long-term trade conflict. I see a question in the back. Hello, my name is uh, Drake Long. I'm a graduate student over at Georgetown. So on the subject of the deleveraging campaign, I would actually like to ask a question very narrowly on the NPLs, the NPL problem, the non-performing loans. Um, how is China actually dealing with non-performing loans? How are the regional banks dealing with them? Is there an effective strategy that China could be doing that they aren't doing? Um, does it look like it's mostly going to be mitigated? Because I was under the assumption that that was a huge problem that has not been totally dealt with yet. Okay, happy to take a second question over here. Good afternoon, thank you. Um, so my, my question is for uh, Professor Yi, if I may. Um, so uh, China is exporting uh, excess capacity at home, trying to shed capacity at home, investing for infrastructure projects abroad, through Belt and Road Initiative and similar financing schemes. So I was wondering whether this adds up to leverage at home or whether this is a good way to diversify investments, especially when uh, some predict that investment in infrastructure that may have transformative impact abroad can add up uh, to Chinese enterprises and contribute domestically to China. Okay, maybe you can connect that to whether sort of BRI investments are helpful or harmful to our particular proposition of whether China's economy is better positioned to weather this trade war. Um, okay, why don't we start with you, Chris? Oh, um, so on the NPL, 
um, on the NPL issue. Um, they actually have been working on this for probably the past year, um, maybe beginning in late 2018 or so, um, and they actually did make uh, some progress, uh, to be completely fair. Um, I think, uh, you know, and they were using different methods uh, to do that. They increased the number of bad debt sales. Um, they, they did some other things. They, they've been recapitalizing banks with various um, financial instruments and things like that to essentially lower that number. Um, they have, banks also have really been trying to push the limits on that to, uh, to quite some extreme. Um, the other thing is, is that you hear uh, from investors in China um, different ways around um, around that and from, even from uh, some of the regulators, um, different ways that they advise their, their banks uh, around that issue. Um, I do think it is still uh, basically fundamentally an issue that uh, needs to be dealt with in a much bigger way because I think the, it's, it, it's rather evident that um, there's a lot of pressure in the system and I think one of the biggest uncertainties is that nobody really knows how big that number is. Um, I don't think anybody in China believes that number, but I don't think anybody really knows what that real number um, is, especially in an, under an economic stress test case. Um, they, there was just, a, there was just a, an exercise, I think a couple weeks ago, where they released the reports where they ran bank stress tests and found that um, even um, moderate degrees of economic stress would cause um, significant problems with banks. Um, so I think that is still a problem that they're, that they're figuring out how to get ahead of. Sure. So first, again, on the impulse, yeah, I think um, the strategy is that um, there was first a, a restructuring even with some default and then that caused some uh, fluctuation in the financial market in mid this year. So the strategy now has become to really find different parties to inject capital into the smaller banks, but also uh, strip away some of the NPLs into these asset management companies to deal with NPLs. So, and um, the, the question is really who provide that capital into the uh, local smaller banks? And this is normally not a central government, but um, either the bigger banks who merge with them or it's the, the local government to find strategic investors. So that seems to be the strategy right now to gradually recapitalize these smaller banks, but also keeping the financial system still up and running, not causing a really a systemic shock to, to the system. On the um, infrastructure um, question, I think that, um, um, yeah, it's, it's investing abroad is a, is, is a big thing for China, but um, the, the amount of investment China is carrying abroad is just very small, really, compared to the size of investment domestically. I still think that, um, just like the U.S., China, there are very similar economies that are really inward-looking, that they are large for the rest of the world, but their own growth is more domestic-driven rather than externally-driven, and that is very different from Japan, for example, or Germany. The, the, the model is different. I think um, uh, the, the, the BR investment is, um, is uh, very significant, maybe for the recipient countries, but it's not really a big significant part of the economy when you consider its size compared to China. Okay, more questions? Yes, over here. Thank you. My name is Keen. I was a banker in Hong Kong before work for Western and Chinese banks. So I would like to ask some questions regarding the, uh, the debt issue as well. Um, based on the uh, International Financial Institute, the debt number is 303%, and within which SOE accounted for about 160 or 180%. The leverage is very high, return on equity is very low, return on the asset is very low, 
and China is continuing to print in money. M2 is close to $200 trillion right now. And the market capitalization of real estate versus GDP is, is about five times, versus uh, the crisis in Japan in 1990, it was about two, plus, two, uh, two times. And the USA in 2008 is at 1.8 times. So my question is, printing so much money and without solving the debt crisis and inject all this equity into the, uh, I'm sorry, liquidity into the real estate market. The bubble is very high and everyone knows. And how could those uh, SOE pay back? I know it's going to be rollover, debt equity swap, all this stuff, you can do it, whatever you want. But the issue is how much you can go, how far you can go by printing so much money without the Minsky moment to come. Thank you. Okay, another question. All right, there's a woman back there. Yes. Thank you both. Uh, my name is Megan Yuan from Merck. Um, I understand the proposition is framed in a bilateral way, but I'm just wondering your views around uh, how other players play a part in the trade context. For instance, Hong Kong as an independent and free port, as well as uh, WHO. Thank you. Um, yeah, so first on the debt to GDP ratio and especially those debt with government and SOEs, what I see is that I think China actually publishes a balance sheet of not only the debt and the assets, but I think I, the, the conclusion is still that um, you have a, uh, also a lot of assets owned by state-owned sector and um, that is still bigger than the debt they own. I think especially this is really domestic debt. This is not external debt issue. If external debt, there will be a different question. But um, the domestic debt, for most part of it, it's, it's a question about asset allocation, about whether you're really putting your assets into the uh, efficient um, uh, part of the economy. And with SOEs borrowing too much, that gives naturally raised the question that maybe those assets are not being in employment in the most efficient way. But um, um, the, just again, going back to China's um, experience with restructuring the SOE sector in the 1990s, it, once you start to put those um, assets into the efficient use and you still have an economic growing at 5-6% per year, the, the, it's very easy for the economy itself to grow out of the debt because the, the government's revenue just grows together with that growth. And um, whatever debt you see as high uh, 10, 20 years ago is just a minimal amount when, after, after, after that kind of growth. Um, on the role of the um, uh, other players in the in the trade war, what what um, we're also observing in the in the numbers is that you do see once the trade war started, that um, there is a reshuffling of the supplies. That China reduces its exports to the U.S. and there are other countries who start to export more. And um, uh, what I found interesting was that um, you, the it's not it's not um, Vietnam who at the macro level that, that really replaces China in those supply chains. It's usually the second and third biggest player in the supply chain that, 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 um, that replaces China's exports, and that's usually Korea, Taiwan, province of China, and Canada, Mexico. Those are the countries that I really see replacing. But, but um, there is some also reshuffling, like um, if, if Taiwan exports more bikes to the U.S., then China might export more bikes to the rest of the world other than the U.S. So um, I think that is just um, the, the way how the global supply chain organizes, it automatically adjusts to this kind of price shocks. 
concerning uh, concerning your question, I think one of the one of the concerns about what happens when uh, China restructures these debts is that they never actually get restructured and properly disposed of. Um, I could tell you numerous anecdotes, but one of the one of the most obvious ones is um, there were companies that were there were banks that were going public a couple of years ago that still listed bad debts on their balance sheet from a decade, 15 years ago that had never been properly dealt with, and that is why a lot of the a lot of the current bad debts are not being sold off to the existing asset management companies because those asset management companies don't actually have the capital to purchase um, the bad debts being incurred now. So a lot of the bad debts that are being sold off now are being sold off to local, what, what are called local AMCs, and oddly enough, uh, the government uh, Beijing allowed local AMCs to capitalize themselves with no equity. So what you have is, is you have a debt-filled, a 100% debt company um, going out and buying bad debts to solve a bad debt problem. Think about that for a minute. A 100% debt finance company going out and buying bad debt to solve a bad debt problem. It's, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, and so one of, the, one of the issues is, is are they actually solving it or are they actually just build, uh, saving, it up, saving up that, that bad asset for another day? Um, and with the, with the SOE issue that were mentioned, um, if you actually look at returns on Chinese firms over time, um, SOEs typically uh, over the long term re return about 1% over the long term. They're not covering their cost of capital. And this is, this is the fundamental problem and so with the, with the re-centralization of the Chinese economy that's taken place over the past couple of years and continues to go on, that raises real questions about how this capital uh, is being allocated. Um, I would completely agree with, uh, with uh, the reshuffling that we see in the trade war and to just kind of build upon what has, has already been said, um, I think a good way to think about this is, is if we take, if we take a, a too-good world, there's T-shirts and iPhones or something like that, the easiest thing to move out of China to Vietnam or another country is t-shirts, okay? And so uh, U.S. imports have basically continued to grow on trend. Again, I say this word over and over again, but you know those T-shirts uh, imports from China have been replaced with have been replaced with T-shirt imports from Vietnam and Mexico. Okay, so those were the easiest things to move. What you're going to see is probably various stages of production that is increasingly difficult to move out of China. Um, so that you're going to go from T-shirts to bicycles to flat panel TVs to very specialized electronic or technology type of things. And so, you're, so you're, I think you're starting to see more and more um, supply chains say, hey, how do we manage our supply chains so we're not within China, even if we have to have a China and a non-China supply chain, um, I think is what you're seeing. Okay. I think um, we've about run out of time here, so we are going to vote. Uh, once again, on our proposition, um, I think we've had really stellar arguments. Uh, so this is going to be tough. We're going to see if the gap narrows or if it widens or if we get a re we haven't had a reversal all day. So um, again, the proposition is that the U.S. economy is better positioned than China's to weather a long-term trade conflict. Uh, our vote before our debate was 62% um, in support of the proposition and 35% uh, against. So I'm going to give you all another minute uh, to enter your votes. There's well over 100 people in this room, guys, so let's see more people vote. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. What, what's with the what's with the C's and E's? It's. Uh, I think in the future we need to eliminate any other options because people, when they don't know, they're undecided. Um, they want to put undecided up there. <laughs> no. The more see, the more I talk about it, the more other uh, votes we get. Okay. So uh, let's uh, let's keep voting. See if we can get a few more in there of you undecideds. You could, you undecideds could even change your vote. That's okay. All right. Um, the gap has narrowed. So it is always interesting to see when uh, at least some people change their minds. So we have 54% to 40%. Uh, so that is, uh, it is a bit of narrowing, but still in favor of the proposition. So please join me in thanking Chris Balding and Isyong. And we're not going to have a break. We're going to turn to our last proposition, which is very exciting because it's about Xi Jinping and whether, whether he's going to remain in power. Um, uh, beyond 2025. So stay tuned, just give us a couple of minutes to swap these uh, name tags out. I'm going to quickly um, repeat what I said earlier for people who may have um, uh, just come in, that um, at 4.15, um, unfortunately, Assistant Secretary Dave Stilwell is ill um, and he's not able to come. We are able to reschedule that speech probably for next week, and we will send out emails when it is rescheduled. In his stead, we will have a senior State Department official um, who will also, of course, speak about China and U.S. policy, um, but that is going to be off the record since we did make those arrangements at the very last minute, and we apologize for that, but it will be interesting, um, I guarantee. So I hope that you will all stay. Uh, but before that, we have um, our terrific um, uh, proposition uh, about uh, Jinping. And um, unlike, uh, uh, unlike, you know, Chinese TV, you know, when it's on CNN and the screen goes black, for those of you, if you are watching online, you're going to be able to see this too. <laughs> so uh, the proposition is Xi Jinping will face a leadership challenge by 2025, and I'm glad that you are all beginning uh, to vote. So I want to see everybody voting in this one um, while I give a brief introduction. Since coming to power in 2012, President uh, Xi Jinping and party secretary has uh, endeavored to expand his influence within the Chinese political system, leading some to hail him as the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong. The removal of the presidential term limits and the party's decision to not appoint a successor at the 19th Party Congress suggests to some observers that Xi Jinping has consolidated his power and doesn't face a threat to his rule. Yet in face of heightened U.S.-China tensions, a slowing economy, challenges to Chinese rule in Hong Kong, and a growing international backlash against Chinese domestic policies in Xinjiang, Others have argued that Xi Jinping faces some opposition from within the Communist Party. Here to delve into the black box of Chinese politics, I have to my right uh, my colleague, uh, the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS, Jude Blanchett. 
He is going to argue in favor of the proposition. And then arguing against the proposition to my left is uh, Professor Joe Fusmith, who is professor of international relations and political science um, in the Frederick S. Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University. So hopefully everybody has voted. Boy, the numbers are really getting lower. It's <laughs> still a lot of people in the room. Come on, guys, I'm gonna give you another uh, 15 seconds. See if uh, other people would like to put their uh, their this votes vote is in. By the way. I I told I told everybody you know we don't have don't the, we don't have the technology yet to know how each person has voted or to change your votes. Maybe someday we will have that technology too. But we don't. We really want to know what you think. Uh, yes. <laughs> Well, we at CSIS are, are falling behind because uh, we let everybody have their own views. So, um, uh, this is a significant gap. We're going to see if, uh, if this can be widened or narrowed. Uh, we have 35% to 64%, and that number is 61. Okay. All right, we are going to close the vote, and we are going to start, as we have with all of our propositions, for the argument in favor of the proposition, Xi Jinping will face a leadership challenge by 2025. Over to you, Jin. Yes, please. Well, uh, Bonnie, thank you very much. Um, it, it's a shame to see that 64% of the clickers are broken. Um, <laughs> but uh, hopefully those will be fixed by the end of uh, the next uh, uh, 15 minutes. Um, it really is a, a real honor to be here today. Uh, I quickly dug up in my email my first fan note to Professor Fusmith that I sent in May 2017 out of the blue, where I had said, uh, your work, most notably Dilemmas of Reform, has been incredibly important to me. If you ever travel to Beijing, please do let me know, as I would greatly appreciate meeting you in person. Uh, he ended up writing back and, and ended up having a, a breakfast with uh, Professor Fusmith. So, so to be sharing the stage with him is, is really an honor, even if it feels a bit like squaring off against Mike Tyson. Um, but I'm going to give it my, my best shot. So obviously, I'll be arguing in favor of the proposition, which is that Xi Jinping will face a leadership challenge by 2025. The, the cheap way out of this would be for me to simply quote from Xi Jinping or, or party press about the number of coups and challenges that they've already stamped down, but I think that would not be in the spirit of the debate, so uh, I will take a more uh, circumspectial approach. Beginning, uh, I think quite naturally, with the climactic scene from Return of the Jedi. Um, and if, if anyone can claim to have fully consolidated power, it would be Emperor Palpatine, also known as Darth Sidious. Um, as the undisputed head of the First Galactic Empire, uh, and I hope everyone here is nodding along because they're, they're up to date on Star Wars lore, um, he controlled a sprawling regime that had strategic military bases and civilian outposts across the known solar system. His military and security apparatus was unrivaled, including the Imperial Guard, the Imperial Army Command, Imperial Starfleet, Imperial Stormtrooper Corps, the Imperial Security Bureau, and the much-feared Imperial Central Intelligence. He oversaw the great Jedi purge, where we saw the total destruction of the Jedi order. And most importantly, he could shoot lightning bolts out of his fingers, levitate objects, and his office was in the Death Star, which could literally blow up planets. 
So if, anyone, if ever anyone should have felt secure in power, uh, it was Emperor Palpatine. And yet, and in keeping with what we know about dictatorships, it was an internal and unexpected challenge from the emperor's closest lieutenant that brought about his end. Until the moment that the emperor was cast down the shaft of uh, the Death Star into the reactor, Darth Vader was uh, a seemingly loyal consigliere, was a devoted supporter of the emperor's policies, uh, and was his undisputed successor. No one could have predicted his defection, uh, and in this there is a lesson for thinking about the motion at hand. Like Kremlinologists who uh, were unable and failed to foresee the attempted coup against Gorbachev, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, so too had Death Starologists failed to predict that Luke was Darth Vader's son uh, and that Darth Vader would turn on his own master. So I hope you're not thinking, what the heck does this have to do with uh, Xi Jinping? I hope it's quite clear. Um, in his rebuttal to the motion, I expect that Comrade Few Smith will uh, build his case based upon um, how General Secretary Xi Jinping has firmly ensconced himself in power. Uh, you will undoubtedly hear about all the titles he holds. You'll hear about how his name is enshrined in the party and state constitutions. You'll hear about how after the recently held fourth plenum, uh, Xi Jinping has emerged stronger than ever. You'll hear how he's called the people's leader, how he's been effectively able to purge and sideline rivals, uh, exercise extraordinary control over uh, the Politburo and its standing committee, and how he's restructured the mili military and security services to increase his direct control. And all of this is true, and all of this, I believe, helps prove my case. <laughs> Xi Jinping will be challenged not because he lacks power uh, or because he is otherwise weak. It is precisely because he's amassed so much, so much power and that he increasingly wields it with such a dictatorial disdain for his fellow CCP leaders that Xi Jinping is under threat. If there is one crime that a general secretary can commit in the post-Mao era, it is precisely this. Um, if you'll permit me two uh, quotes here from party lore, as the 1981 resolution on certain questions in the history of our party since the founding of the People's Republic of China, which is the actual title of the document, as it says, uh, Comrade Mao Zedong's prestige reached a peak when he began to get arrogant at the very time when the party was confronted with the new task of shifting the focus of its work to socialist construction, a task for which the utmost caution was required. He gradually divorced himself from practice and from the masses, acted with more arbitrary, arbitrariness and subjectivity, and increasingly put himself above the Central Committee of the Communist Party. The result, the document concludes, was a steady weakening and even undermining of the principle of collective leadership, of democratic centralism, uh, excuse me, and of democratic centralism in the political life of the party and the country. Uh, August 18th, 1980, Deng Xiaoping gave what I think was his most important speech, where he warned, quote, it is not good to have over-concentration of power. It hinders the practice of socialist democracy and of the power's democratic centralism. It impedes the progress of socialist construction. Over-concentration of power is liable to give rise to arbitrary rule by individuals at the expense of the collective leadership. And it is an important cause of bureaucracy under the current, certain, excuse me, present circumstances. I'm going to come back to Xi Jinping for a moment, but I want to discuss another Communist Party leader who, until the very moment that he was purged by his colleagues, was seemed to be um, untouchable. And I think those of us who think about elite Chinese politics don't spend enough time thinking about the rise and fall of Nikita Khrushchev, but in this case, I think it's quite instructive. 
Um, my friend Joseph Tarigian has a, a really fantastic paper on Khrushchev's purge, and I was reading it uh, over the weekend and was struck by uh, some of what Joseph has brought to light. The first is, in a footnote, he notes how American Sovietologists leading up to Khrushchev's purge in 1964 were essentially split. On the one hand, you had many who saw Khrushchev as having near total dominance over the political system. He was unrivaled, unchallenged. Um, the others believed that there was a fierce political struggle uh, that was currently undergoing within the Central Committee and that uh, Khrushchev was, at that point, uh, been able to best his foes, but that was, uh, if anything, temporary. That's one thing I think is important, is we've seen this play before. Uh, the second is, regardless of uh, how we retroactively come to think of Khrushchev as a bit, you know, a, a bit portly, a bit dawdling, um, and because of his purge, we seem to view that as necessary and deterministic. In fact, Khrushchev was a formidable political actor who had clawed his way to the top after the death of Stalin. Um, and from Joseph's paper, he quotes the then head of the KGB during Khrushchev's demise, who later remembered that Khrushchev, Khrushchev had, quote, crushed the likes of Melenkov and Molotov, all of them. As the saying goes, nature and his mama provided him with everything he needed, firmness of will, quick-wittedness, quick and capacity for fast, careful thinking. To quote Joseph's own analysis, up to the moment of Khrushchev's defeat, his associates generally acted, toward him, acted towards him obsequiously, and even his most outlandish ideas were swiftly executed. So behind the facade of loyalty, opposition was building, and while Khrushchev had overseen some unpopular policies, again, there's, a, uh, I think, a, a direct analogy with today, it was the actions that threatened his fellow elite that ultimately sealed his deal. Uh, to final quote from Joseph, he says, the most likely proximate cause of Khrushchev's removal were his planned personnel reshuffles, which would have potentially weakened the Presidium members. This behavior was related to a larger problem, Khrushchev's increasingly dictatorial tendencies. So when he was finally purged, many were survived, or surprised. Many who had been watching this and knew that he was increasingly unpopular still didn't expect the speed with which this opposition arose and how his colleagues, who up to the very moment had been praising him, suddenly uh, pulled out the knives from behind their back uh, and turned on him. Um, the Air Force uh, commander who was in charge of training the commandants, or the cosmonauts who had been a long time quiet uh, foe of Khrushchev remarked in his diary, I did not think it would be that fast. So back to China and back to Xi Jinping. Before we get to the present, I want to level set on China's political system, which is to say it's always been throughout its, I don't know how many thousands of years of history it has now, but 5,000 or so, it's always been nasty, brutish, and often very short. Um, Wang Yuhua, who's at University of Pennsylvania, has done some number crunching, and of the 282 emperors who have exited power throughout Chinese history, 26% of that total were deposed by other elites, including by being murdered, overthrown, forced to abdicate, and forced to commit suicide. Even in modern times, that is to say in the post-49 era, this has always been a messy affair, as, as Professor Fusmith has written so eloquently about himself. While even Mao Zedong dominated the political system from 1949 to 1976 when he died, there were always challenges to power, most notably after uh, the disastrous Great Leap Forward. Of course, we have the infamous incident of his top lieutenant and one-time successor, Lin Biao, who mysteriously died in a plane crash in 1971 after the failed or reputed plot, the 571 plot, to uh, overthrow and assassinate Mao Zedong. 
In the relatively serene period from 1980 to 1989, uh, we had the purge of two general secretaries, the now totally forgotten in party lore, Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang. Um, even Jiang Zemin, who we don't think of as having a power challenge in 2002, had a pretty extraordinary open letter written by uh, conservatives like Deng Chun and 16 others, which because of the uh, three represents, which allowed capitalists into the Communist Party, they wrote that uh, they wrote a letter to the Central Committee accusing Jiang of, quote, political misconduct unprecedented in the history of the party. The, the letter uh, went on to say that as punishment, Comrade Jiang Zemin needs to carry out serious self-criticism within the party regarding his misconduct in order to remove ideological confusions that have been, the cause by, that have been caused by his misconduct and to undo its negative uh, consequences. So what about Xi Jinping? Has he essentially achieved escape velocity? Um, how can, can he now do whatever he wants for as long as he wants? Um, is mounting an effective challenge all but impossible, which I think is what you'd have to be arguing or that at least he can do that uh, for the next seven years without, no, without any consequence. A few reasons why I don't think this is true, beside what I've, also, I've said uh, previously. First, we're already seeing increasing signs of discontentment within the party. Um, we could go on for quite a while. I'll pick out a few. One is Deng Xiaoping's son, Deng Pufeng, wrote, uh, gave a speech in September 2018, where without uh, speaking um, uh, Xi Jinping's name, like Voldemort, nonetheless said, uh, we should uh, seek truth from facts, we should maintain a clear head, knowing one's own strengths and weaknesses, and we should avoid underestimating or overestimating oneself and behaving recklessly, hint, hint. We've seen in the, ra the last few weeks the leaking of documents relating to the extraordinary and systematic system of surveillance and, and imprisonment in Xinjiang. We're upwards of a million people. These were leaked by government officials. The party is dependent on documentation to move. Uh, we've not had a widespread system of leaks, but if you were looking to push back, uh, this would be one effective way to do so. We've seen the uh, long-standing, but I think increasingly pronounced problem of cadre inaction. The Buzolwe problem, where you just don't do anything as a way of passive resistance. This has become, you know this is pronounced because CCDI on its website oftentimes has long catalogs of all the problems with cadres not doing what Xi Jinping wants. Let's add to this a cascade of political and policy blunders. We can start at China's southern border uh, with Hong Kong uh, and events over the past six months which have been extraordinary and have led, if we now move out uh, to the north and uh, east of Hong Kong to Taiwan, where those have had an extraordinary reverberation there and uh, along with events in Xinjiang, I think have forever changed the political trajectory of how Taiwan thinks about uh, the mainland and reunification and seems likely to tip the election back in favor of DPP President Tsai Ing-wen. You've had the deterioration of US-China relations, which is, uh, as we talk about a lot here, certainly deeper and broader than just President Trump and is one of the few bipartisan issues in the United States. You have domestically in China slowing economic growth, fears of a middle income trap. There's not a lot for Xi Jinping to hang his hat on and say he's been successful at. So in light of these circumstances, can an increasingly dictatorial Xi Jinping continue to amass power at the expense of his uh, fellow senior leaders, all the while China confronts an, increasingly, an increasing convergence of internal and external challenges? My question is, can all of this last for another seven years? Forget about any timeline longer than that. 
I don't think this can hold. So very quickly in the one minute and three seconds I have left, um, now that Xi Jinping has abolished term limits, he sends a signal to all his potential opposition that he's gonna stay in power forever. What this effectively does is this pulls forward the time horizon of when you'd wanna challenge Xi Jinping. Time is not on Xi Jinping's side now. The best time to uh, uh, mount an effective challenge or to try to mount one is yesterday, not tomorrow. Um, in 2022, we'll see the 20th Party Congress. Uh, these are the year when Xi faces his election. These are transition years. They're always extraordinarily sensitive times for the party. This one will be even more sensitive. This is the year of the great unveiling when Emperor Xi Jinping will announce that he is not intending to step down, as I think most of us on the stage believe. Um, that will again confirm uh, this is uh, not your old political system in China and that a leadership change is not forthcoming anytime soon. I said I'd skip over the comments by Xi Jinping about all the challenges and coups he faces, but if you'll just permit me a few quotes. Uh, in a speech January 13th, 2015, uh, in front of the fifth full meeting of, of the CCDI, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping warned of political plot activities by CCP officials to, quote, wreck and split the party. So we know this is all the backdrop for how he's looking at his position in power. Very quickly, how might we see a challenge occur? Um, this will undoubtedly be amongst party and military elite. Um, collective action problems exist for mounting a coup or a challenge. Of course they do, but of course they're not fully and totally uh, insurmountable. If they were, no authoritarian leader would ever be brought down from power. Um, as the, as the example of Darth Vader shows, this is gonna come from some place we may not even expect, including someone very close to Xi Jinping who knows where all the maps, buttons, and rooms are. Um, and in the end, and I think importantly, Xi Jinping, like Oz, is just a 66-year-old man. He only has power because others grant it to him. As soon as that mandate is withdrawn by a sufficient number of people, he's out of power. And it is up to uh, Comrade Fusmith to prove uh, otherwise. Thank you very much. Well, it's a real pleasure to share a stage with uh, Conrad Blanchett. <laughs> and thank you for buying that breakfast a couple of years ago. I really appreciate the hospitality of a couple of years ago and of course of CSIS today, Bonnie and so forth. And I will try to be as predictable as possible by doing exactly what you suggested that I do. Um, and go through all of Xi Jinping's strengths. But let me start spending a couple of minutes on thinking about how tension arises in the Chinese Communist Party uh, and see if there are some patterns there. Uh, I tend to like to put the idea of tensions within the party in sort of two boxes. Uh, one are the midterm elections, the, the various plenum. I, I always think of this as a third plenum, you know, tension thing, because it's often between Congresses that tensions uh, build up for a variety of reasons. Uh, this could be because of new policy initiatives. You've got a new leadership in, takes them a couple of years to settle down, they decide to do something, other people don't like it. The other reason, of course, is that about that time, you're lining up your ducks in a row, thinking about the next Congress, and by the time you get to the Congress, 
everybody's kind of on board with what you've put together. So, you know, uh, I would always look at sort of the midterm tensions as one area of tension. And then, of course, there is the uh, tensions that sometimes come with party congresses, and those uh, are associated primarily with leadership changes. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we have seen the, a couple of those that I'll, I'll refer to uh, in a minute. Um, so, uh, you know, in the, in the 1980s, 1980s were a fun decade because everybody could see that the Chinese political system was just filled with tension. Uh, we had campaigns against spiritual pollution, 1983. Uh, you probably don't think of the uh, uh, 1984 economic reform decision as, as tension-filled, but believe me, it was. When one of the uh, primary authors of that, Shui Mu Chao, went up to see his old boss, Chun, uh, Chun Yun, Chun Yun said, who are you? I don't know you. Politics can be cold, in case any of you haven't noticed. <laughs> Washington sometimes has that. Uh, obviously, there was bourgeois liberalization campaign in uh, 1987, uh, and, and then obviously in 1989 and so forth. So we've seen a lot of tensions. And in some ways, Tiananmen itself reflected some of these midterm tensions that I've mentioned. Uh, you had uh, tensions stemming from the ouster of Huyabang, from different interpretations of economic reform, where you were going. Uh, and obviously, uh, what's usually not mentioned with Tiananmen is the succession issue. Deng Xiaoping and Chun Yun are getting really old, uh, and there's a decision on the horizon. Uh, is it going to be some liberal like Huyabang or Zhao Ziyang, or some more conservative person like Li Peng? There was clearly, you know, so you had leadership tensions, policy divisions, and obviously a mass movement that brought all of this sort of stuff to a head. So, you know, you always do have these, these tensions uh, that build up. Um, so in the mid-1990s, uh, you mentioned uh, 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 one problem with Jiang Zemin. I think the, um, you know, w in 1994, you really had a power transition from an old Deng Xiaoping who is mentally, uh, was, was losing it. Uh, and in the fourth plenum in 1994, there was really a transfer of power to, uh, to Jiang Zemin. By the way, 1994 was the first of three um, party decisions on uh, building the party, party governance. Uh, the last month was the third. This was the first of those three. And gee, it, it talked about centralization of power and the need for the lower levels to pay attention to the senior levels. So some themes have remained the same. Uh, that was when Jiang Zemin was taking power, real power, uh, and uh, I wonder why he called for centralization. Um, at any case, uh, uh, that, I don't want to call it a crisis, but tension in the political system. Uh, you, one manifestation of that was the arrest of Chen Xitong. You know, that really showed who's boss. Uh, Chen Xitong was then mayor of Beijing, of course. Um, at any case, uh, we also saw some tension in 2006. Uh, Hu Jintao, for some reason, thought that he should have the power that goes with the title. Um, strange thought. Uh, and uh, he took down uh, the 
um, mayor or party secretary of Shanghai, Chen Liangyu. And you know what the result of that was? Uh, it wasn't repeating the Chen Xitong arrest to consolidate power. It turned out that you can kill the monkey or the chicken and the monkey doesn't get scared. You know, this is a problem. You kill the chicken, the monkey's supposed to run away. Uh, so when the monkey doesn't run away, you got a problem. Uh, and the monkey didn't run, a, uh, run away this time. There are three major investigative organs in the party, right? The uh, Zhengfa, the uh, Political uh, Legal Commission, uh, the CDIC, the Central Discipline Inspection Commission, and um, the... Um, uh, um, oh, public Ministry of Public Security. At the 17th Party Congress, these were all taken over by people loyal to Jiang Zemin. Go ahead and investigate me. You got no tools. You know, so that's what I mean by the monkey not getting scared. So you do have these tensions that are resolved one way or another. Um, we saw, obviously we saw really big tension in 2012 when Bo Xilai, Ling Jihua, uh, obviously Guo Buxiong, Xu Ho were all taken down. This was remarkable and reflected enormous tension within the party. And I think we should, going forward, take this into account uh, because I do think that however powerful Xi Jinping is, tensions will manifest themselves in the party in the future. Um, in short, tensions within the party can emerge over policy, over the issue of succession, or both, and are most dangerous to the party when society is aroused and takes to the streets. Uh, tensions, imply, tensions imply divisions within the party, and the idea of divisions within the party implies that there are a significant number of people who disagree, at significantly high levels who disagree with each other. Um, if you don't have that, then divisions aren't there. Uh, but given this history, this litany of tensions within the party that I've just scanned over, um, you might wonder why I'm arguing the against position. Uh, but I, I do, again, thank Jude for uh, allowing me to argue this because I think it is the easier argument as you're uh, votes before this uh, suggested. Uh, you, you, by the way, the 65% of you who voted uh, the against position were correct. <laughs> uh, in any case, uh, uh, you know, um, she has, uh, over the last two party congresses, affected absolutely enormous change in China's political elite. It is absolutely overwhelming. Um, I think the only comparable period, thinking post-cultural post revolution, is the sweeping leadership changes that occurred between 1978 and 1985. Between the Third Plenum, the 12th Party Congress, and the National Party Representatives meeting that everybody forgets about. That was really important. Uh, so let me, to argue this proposition, let me go through some of the data, particularly from the 19th Party Congress, uh, because the data from the 19th Party Congress is, is really surprising. Uh, as you know, a lot of the attention two years ago was, will Wang Qishan retire or not? He did, 
Oh my God, it's following the norms. Everything's institutionalized. That was the only thing I could find that was institutionalized about that Congress. Uh, you know, normally, of course, uh, the new members of the standing committee are promoted from the full membership of the Politburo. Uh, and it's been nice. They've gone nicely in order. Well, they did in some ways this time, but you had to re retire three members of the, Central, of the Politburo before you could then promote the others. Uh, we've, you know, two members of the Politburo who were age 67 were forced to retire from the Politburo and take up positions on the Central Committee. The last person, in fact, the only person to do that before was Hua Guofeng. Uh, in, in other words, this is very unusual. Uh, the third, Li Yuan Chao, was asked to go home. And I think probably given the political tensions at the time, he was very happy to go home. Uh, it could have been much worse for him. Uh, at the Politburo level, just staying on the Politburo level, um, there were two members of the current Politburo, uh, Tai Chi and uh, uh, Yang Xiaodu, who were not even members of the Central Committee. Not alternate members, not full members of the Central Committee, and they were raised to the Politburo level. We have not seen that in 30 years of reform. We had four members of the Politburo who were raised from being alternate members of the Central Committee. Uh, the only time that I can remember, or the last time I can remember that happening, was Zhu Rongji in 1994, and he had a little help from this guy by the name of Deng Xiaoping. Uh, this is extraordinary. This, these are, we haven't seen this sort of helicopter promotion since the Cultural Revolution. This is extraordinary. Um, at any case, um, uh, oh, in the Politburo, other than the Standing Committee, you know, the regular full members of the Politburo, uh, by coincidence and by maneuvering and so forth, there were 15 empty seats that needed to be filled. And that's an extraordinary number. That doesn't happen very often. Uh, so Xi Jinping really had to reach out to his friends to fill those seats. He found 10 friends who were, you know, you can trace the background, who are close to him, 10 people, most of whom will be age eligible to continue on to the 20th Party Congress. Uh, so this was really quite extraordinary to, um, to fill the uh, uh, Politburo with friends uh, and close associates. Two members of the Central Military Commission uh, had never served on the Central Committee as alternates or full members before. To raise somebody who is not on the Central Committee in any capacity to the Central Military Commission, this is extraordinary. Um, look at the, uh, there were 40 members of the PLA on the uh, uh, 18th Central Committee 27 of them had to retire, um, well, did retire. 11 of those 27 retired prematurely. That is to say, they had not reached the retirement age and nevertheless retired. Uh, we've never seen that before. That has not happened before in the reform period. Um, of the 205 full members of the 18th Party con uh, Central Committee, 
78 returns, uh, re, uh, retained their seats on the 19th Central Committee. That's only 38%. It's usually about 50%. That tells you a little bit about the amount of turnover. Uh, only 32 people were elevated from the alternate list to full membership on the Central Committee. That's 20%. That's, it's often about 25% or so. It's not normally a, a high number. This was even lower than usual. Uh, that meant that 94, 94 people on the Central Committee, I mean full members, uh, were uh, appointed to the new Central Committee. This is 94 people who are not alternates, have never served on the Central Committee f before, are being elevated helicopter style onto the Central Committee. Um, and that's obviously an extraordinary opportunity to reshape and shape favorably the political elite of China. Uh, in other words, uh, Xi Jinping did more to reshape the political landscape at the 19th Party Congress uh, than we've seen since Deng Xiaoping returned to power in the early 1980s. It's really quite extraordinary. Uh, one, of the, one of the obvious problems is something like the 19th Party Congress happens and the journalists report on it the next day. A month or two later when you can sort through the data, everybody's forgotten about it. And so it's important to remember some of this data and what exactly happened and what it shows about the personalization of power. We have not seen that sort of personalization of power uh, in 30 years. So um, I think that, and this is where I would give Jude's side of the argument a lot of credit, is that this high-handedness, this personalization has to cause a lot of resentment in the political system. Just has to. Um, that could be the source of a real threat to Xi Jinping's leadership. The problem, of course, is how can they make their voices heard? They're no longer on the Central Committee, and that's the problem. Um, given Xi's dominance of the political elite, I just don't think that they can find a way of voicing their views. In other words, the sorts of divisions that I looked at very quickly in the um, exploring the various tensions in the past, saying that there have to be significant numbers of people at a significantly high level to be able to voice opposition, that no longer exists. And so, um, for better or for worse, uh, I'm afraid um, we're gonna live with Xi Jinping for a while. As, <laughs> so that, it's on that that I will rest my case. Thank you very much. Okay, we're going to give each of you five minutes to comment, reply, respond to the points made by the other. Jude, you're up first. I just realized the problem, I was just so intently listening to what you were saying, enjoying it, that I didn't really start to construct a, uh, a rebuttal. So, uh, uh, so uh, obviously, I think there's a, a complete and total agreement on how Xi Jinping has, in a way that uh, was not appreciated by really anyone, when he first came to power has proven himself to be an extraordinarily adept bureaucratic and political actor. Um, there, there's debate about is, does the man make the system or the system make, make the man? 
Uh, some have argued that Xi Jinping came to power with a mandate to really uh, uh, purge this far because the party was, was reaching a, or faced an existential challenge. Uh, I think no one within the senior leadership and the elders who put him in power knew how far he would push. Uh, it's, it's inconceivable that they would have because people like Zhou Yongkong probably would have put up more of a fuss uh, had they known at the 18th Party Congress that this, uh, that this guy coming in was going to set out to fundamentally remake the party, which, which Xi Jinping has done. Um, I'm, I'm struck by the comment, and I completely agree, that Xi Jinping has done more to affect enormous political changes within China than really any other leader since Deng Xiaoping, maybe 1981, 1982, when you had significant restructurings. To me, that's kind of the point, though. Um, the, the number of iron rice bowls that have been smashed by Xi Jinping, uh, the number of high-ranking cadres throughout the military security services and, and the political apparatus who, who sit in a jail just north of Beijing uh, uh, still have some prime in their life and, and waiting to uh, exact revenge. Um, I hold it to be a self-evident truth uh, that uh, people within China, within its political system, want to remove Xi Jinping. This isn't unique to China. There are people in the United States who want to remove Donald Trump. Uh, every political system has people who would prefer that they are in power than the person uh, in power. So the question is, where are they? Uh, Professor Fusmith said, we don't hear their voices. Absolutely. There's an extraordinary apparatus of surveillance and censorship, which is there precisely to make sure you don't hear about divisions within the party. It, to me, would be, however, an extraordinary leap to expect, therefore, that there's not some sort of Newtonian political force at work here where every action by Xi Jinping has a corresponding and opposite reaction. And the question is, if there's not the right of, uh, of, of exit or voice, then you have the pressure building some, somewhere else within the system. And that, to me, is what we should be on the lookout for. Uh, Pekingologists, Kremlinologists, people who look at opaque authoritarian systems uh, have extraordinarily bad record, Professor Fusmith notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> We just don't know. This is very Rumsfeldian with known unknowns. We know we don't know a lot. We're always surprised by the speed and severity with which once seemingly indestructible systems come crumbling down. The Communist Party is no different. It's 89 million uh, uh, human beings who occupy this position, who occupy this uh, a political party. It's an even smaller number who occupy the political system. Xi Jinping's full-time job Every day he wakes up and says, how do I stay in power? By which he means, how do I keep this small coalition together? Not, not the 1.4 billion people. He's talking about 50, 100, 150 people who occupy key positions in the military security services, SOEs, private sector, the government and the party apparatus. How do I keep them happy? How do I make sure the pie is growing and I'm able to divide slices to make sure that they continue to vote for me? Because as general secretary of the Communist Party, you don't have an election once every five years. You're voted on every single day because you've got to keep this coalition chugging along. So I, I'll, I'll throw my challenge back at Professor Fusmith, which is um, that's a tall order. That's, that's a tough job, and I don't think we should take seeming quiescence of the bureaucrats and cadres as evidence that, there's, that they're quiet. We can expect somewhere in the system pressure is building, and I don't think it's going to go seven more years. You optimist. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it is interesting. You talk about people not being happy with Xi Jinping. In my various discussions, um, I think that there are a lot of people that are unhappy. Uh, 
uh, cadres. They really don't like Xi Jinping, in part because they feel scared to death. Uh, they don't know what is not a mistake, um, and so in many cases they don't do anything. Uh, they don't like the crackdown on corruption for some obvious reasons. Um, uh, Li Lian uh, Zhang has a wonderful article in China International Journal, I believe it is, about the number of cadres who have stepped down from power after the 18th Party Congress. Uh, so there is at least exit. Um, you know, so there are a lot of people that don't like it. In the PLA, my assumption is that when you fire something in the range of 100 senior military leaders, that there's a lot of unhappiness. Uh, what's extraordinary is that, at least so far, we haven't seen any response. I don't deny that it's possible that somehow uh, this would happen, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, you've gotten away with firing 100 senior generals, and they're unhappy, their families are unhappy, their friends are unhappy, but you've promoted 100 other people who are very happy, uh, and so perhaps um, that's not a problem. Uh, you know, my assumption, and it's purely my assumption, maybe it's made up. Uh, remember the two weeks that uh, Xi Jinping disappeared before the uh, Party Congress in 2012? We have no idea what he was doing. I think he was a very, very busy guy. Uh, my guess is that he got agreement from the senior leadership. And by senior leadership, I mean all the retired people who are not supposed to have any power, uh, but they actually do. Uh, to carry out an extensive uh, campaign against corruption. And I would be willing to bet uh, that he actually laid out evidence for Jiang Zemin and others that says Zhou Yangkang has to go. And I say that only because immediately after the 18th Party Congress, you started to see people fall who were related to Zhou Yangkang. And I'll bet when the first guy fell, which was gosh, I think about December 1st that year, I'll bet Zhou Yangkang knew he's coming for me. One of the nice things about the Chinese system is that they let people like Zhou Yangkang dangle for two years, watching the fire get ever closer to him, and he can't do anything about it. Uh, that was the time for Zhou Yangkang or other people to fight back. Obviously, Ling Jihua had the same fight uh, and other leaders of the military and so forth. Um, so, you know, I think that the bottom line is that if you want to fight back, you missed your opportunity. You're screwed. <laughs> uh, that is acceptable CSIS language. <laughs> is it not? By the way, I, I think we should add on to this uh, technological improvements. Um, now that you have to do facial recognition to sign up for your iPhone, uh, your mobile phone, and so many other forms, it is so much more difficult to organize any sort of protest. Uh, it really has gotten, the, the ability to do horizontal organization, I think, has really, really gone down. And, you know, in the past I've thought technology is no match for popular opinion. I've changed my opinion. I think technology, uh, along with all these other things, really is a match, and it could, this could go on for a very long time, at least more than seven years. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we, we had to choose a deadline, so we chose 2025. 
we have, I think, about 15 uh, minutes or so for Q&A. Um, and we'd like to engage all of you in the, dis in the discussion before we have a final vote. And I'm glad that we have some hands. So um, why don't we start right over here? Hi, Brendan Mulvaney from the China Aerospace Studies Institute. It's framed as a leadership challenge in a nebulous way. Would it matter if we said a leadership challenge for the party, for the presidency, or for the CMC? And does it matter if he gives up one of those in a titular way, say, I give up the presidency, but I'm still going to maintain my spot on the CMC uh, and the general secretary, a la Jiang Zemin? Does that change uh, the dynamics in any way? Okay, hold on to that. We're going to take one more question. Pat, in the front. Um, Pat Buchan from CSIS. Uh, Jude, my question's to you. Um, you used an historical analogy and then a science fiction one, so I'm going to stick to your historical analogy as a fan of the classic three Star Wars films. Um, my question to you is, uh, so you raised the Khrushchev analogy, right? And, you know, you spoke of, uh, as, as uh, Professor Fusmith did, you spoke very closely of the internal pressures that will face to a leadership challenge which would bring one about. But perhaps one of the, the other things to think about in Khrushchev's case was, you know, the Cuba crisis played a major role in the senior leadership putting pressure on him to, to, to stand down. What is a, which international event or what, which international pressure could be applied or is in fact perhaps is being applied that we're not thinking of in terms of forcing Xi from power. For example, what if the trade war with the United States ratchet up to a level that forces, forces his hand? So I'm interested in your views on what external pressures could be applied or in fact are being applied. Interesting, okay. Good, two good questions, Jude, you're up. Yeah, so I, th I think the, um, in the spirit of, of framing it, we left it vague precisely to give a, a, a wide variety of angles to, to look at this problem. And I think this is really an exercise to dive into authoritarian politics. But uh, you know, taking the question of sort of does it matter how the, the, the leadership challenge occur, I think the premise here was that something, something occurs that forces Xi from effective power, and I think that would be it within the party apparatus. So I think this is a binary party military leadership, he's either in power or, or, or not, is how I was thinking we, we were looking at this. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, obviously if you give up the presidency, you can't be invited to any other country. That's why, I'm, I'm quite serious, nobody invites the head of the Chinese Communist Party to go anywhere. So you have to be a state leader, president, of the country, and then you can be invited. Uh, if he's just head of the military, by the way, the head of the, it's fascinating, we always talk about how the military has to listen to the party, but if you give up one position or the other, which one do you give up? Deng Xiaoping gave up the head of the, well, effective head and kept the, the Central Military Commission. Jiang Zemin right. did the same thing. Hu Jintao wishes he could have done the same thing. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, it makes you wonder, uh, apparently being head of the military is more important than being head of the party. Uh, just a question, do we actually, do we know if you did give up the office of the presidency, you couldn't make state visits, 
But do we know that you, also, you couldn't, as the de facto political leader of, an, of a country, you couldn't still go to the United States for, it's not a state visit, but it still does all the... Well, back in the days when everything was harmonious, uh, Deng Xiaoping yeah. came, yeah, uh, can, went to a rodeo. You can go to rodeo, rodeo. yeah. Uh, you know? uh, so theoretically, yes. Yeah. Um, to Pat's question, first, um, Star Wars is a space fantasy. It's not science fiction, so just want to <laughs> clarify that. Um, um, so I, in thinking about this over the past couple of weeks, um, I've actually shifted my opinion a little bit on, um, through some back and forth with folks much smarter on this than I am, that maybe there's too much emphasis on this idea that it will be a policy failure as such that will provoke the, provoke the, the pushback. Um, and you're seeing that narrative now. I use it myself in throwaway comments of, you know, look at the cascade of errors that is now mounting in China. Um, but I think I've convinced that actually in many ways it, 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 that's incidental. Um, one of those could be weaponized and utilized. Really the, the, the key thing would be do you have a coalition of the two or three people and then almost what you use as the proximate cause could be any number of these that we've talked about, right? It could be, um, you know, at, a, at an enlarged Politburo meeting, uh, someone bravely could raise their hand and say, Comrade Xi, you look tired. Um, you know, you've got a lot on your plate. We see that U.S.-China relations is, is deteriorating. I know you've, you've been busy thinking about Hong Kong. I know that isn't going well. Why don't we have someone younger and more able to, to step in? How about Comrade Wong or, or something like that? And, and, and crucially, you need the second person to raise their hand and say, I, I, I agree. So I, I almost wonder if we, if we put too much onus on what is the actual event, that may not be the, real, the thing we should be looking for. That would just be the proximate, proximate cause, but... Heck if I know, actually, is the real answer. Okay, we'll take two more questions. In the back. Uh, yeah, Bill Jones from Executive Intelligence Review. Uh, you've talked a lot about the internal changes at the top, but there is that the very subtle uh, concept known as the mandate of heaven, that is, how the effect is among the general population. And obviously, Xi Jinping has changed policy tremendously. Uh, he has uh, created or built on this notion of Chinese rejuvenation. Uh, he has uh, brought China into the modern world. Some people are worried about that because they think it's a, a grab for uh, hegemony worldwide. But uh, it may just be an attempt by China to realize its position in the world as a major power. Uh, uh, aside from that, this has had a tremendous effect in the general population. It's my impression that Xi Jinping, among the masses, is tremendously popular. There was the, uh, the population uh, alleviation, uh, the Belt and Road, which has had some criticism, has nevertheless helped to uh, grow the Chinese economy. And anybody who would want to get rid of Xi Jinping would have to... Uh, to, would have to confront that policy and, and probably have to change it. And I think that Xi's position is tremendously strong among the masses and anybody tried to uh, overthrow him. This is not like Mao after the great leap forward when everybody is really depressed and upset and angry. This is a very popular president. It could cause tremendous convulsions within uh, Chinese society as a whole. And I don't know if anybody would be prepared to deal with that, especially given that none of them that are at the uh, top level at this point. But that hasn't been dealt with at all here. And I think this is a, this is a very important issue, you know, because although the Chinese uh, population doesn't vote him into power, that mandate of heaven is still there and is an important factor in Chinese politics. Okay, ending with a question mark, do you agree? 
and uh, <laughs> Jonathan. <laughs> Hi, uh, Jonathan at the British Embassy. Um, how much, in your opinion, is the direction China headed in personified in Xi Jinping? So as we debate a leadership challenge and who will be in power in the future, for US policymakers and for other countries, how much does that materially change the way we engage in the direction that China is heading in? want to start? I'm not sure if I quite caught the... Can, you, can you repeat the, that, Jonathan? How does it affect the trajectory of China? Uh, as in, today we're debating who will be in power in the future in China, who will be the leader. How much of the direction that China is heading in is personified in President Xi, and will a different leader take China in a different direction? Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, I misunderstood a little bit uh, at first. Um, I think one of the really interesting questions is whether Xi Jinping will appoint his own successor. Uh, because past leaders have not really been able to do that. Uh, Jiang Zemin was something of an accidental general secretary. He wanted to promote his own aid. Uh, that didn't happen. Hu Jintao, as mandated by Deng Xiaoping, took over. Hu Jintao would have wanted to raise one of Li Keqiang, presumably. Uh, that didn't happen. So far, a leader has not been able to appoint his own successor. The sorts of data that I was citing about what happened at the 19th Party Congress suggests that Xi Jinping will indeed have that power because it seems to be a very human emotion that we not only want power and to implement our own policies, but we want them to continue after we go see Marx or whoever. Um, and uh, so I think that that's the first question. Uh, I do, by the way, think that the longer Xi Jinping stays in power, the bigger the leadership crisis will be. Uh, I, if you had extended your date on this to 2035 or whatever, I would have had much more hesitation in arguing this side of the proposition. Uh, if a variety of things, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Sino-US, trade, whatever, are seen as one ser uh, failure after another, then I think the odds of somebody taking China in a different direction are very high. Um, you know, the unfortunate thing is, obviously what Xi Jinping is playing on, including the mandate of heaven, uh, is really what we call nationalism. And the unfortunate dilemma is that the more the U.S. pushes back, which in some ways it has to do, the more you get a nationalistic reaction from China. Uh, what I think we're all concerned about is this downward spiral. And how do you get off of that? Are there some off-ramps? So, um, you know, uh, just on the mandate of heaven thing, keep in mind that China under Mao Zedong was really bad. I, I mean, in terms of its economic and social performance. Uh, you know, peasants were really starving to death. Chun Yun in 1980 said, if we do not reform agriculture, Party secretaries are going to lead peasants into the city and demand food. You know, that was a conservative leader. Um, you know, Mao Zedong, if Mao Zedong had not died in 1976, if he had lived another 10 years, would there have been any challenge to his authority? Absolutely not. Uh, today, the circumstances are quite different, but I'm afraid the answer would still be the same, that you know, I would, I've thought about this Khrushchev analogy. For some reason, it just doesn't seem to me likely 
that China will pull a Khrushchev. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the mandate of heaven thing, um, I, it feels like you're right that there's a high degree of support for Xi Jinping, but I always, uh, um, I hesitate a little bit because we just have no idea. Um, we have no idea because we don't have anything like the tools we have available in, in modern open societies to accurately gauge levels of political support. We have none of the mechanisms, none of the votes, none of the polls. It's really based on... Uh, my cab driver gave me the thumbs up when I said Xi Jinping in Beijing, or you know, my friends think. Um, and there's also something called preference falsification, which is in authoritarian political systems, people lie because they're afraid. And so um, I don't think that covers everything. I think you're, I, my gut tells me you're right, that there is a higher degree of, of tacit support for Xi Jinping as a, as a big, strong nationalist leader than, than we give credit for, or because, as you say, of poverty alleviation programs. But, but I feel like I, I don't want to take that too far in terms of building a, a, a policy agenda around that or accurately trying to ga gauge how strong the regime is because we just don't know. And, and then a great, great question on the, you know, post-C, what happens. Um, I, I, just a thought on this, aside from the fact that I have no idea, is going back to that, um, this, this dung speech, I feel like I quote it way too much. My wife is sick of hearing it. But... Um, in that 1980 speech that Deng gave, he basically said there's, this is after the wreckage of the Mao era, Deng's finally consolidated power. He's looking out at the political system and he says there's four great challenges our political system has to overcome if we're gonna rule perpetually, right? One is the overconcentration of power, which I mentioned at the top. The second is we can't have the this, this central leader holding too many concurrent posts. As Deng said, there's a limit to any, anyone's time and energy. Uh, in other words, don't become the bottleneck of all bottlenecks. Uh, third is we need to get the party to clearly divide and delineate its responsibilities with the government. We need to stop having the party do everything, and we need to give the technocrats and the governments more autonomy and sovereignty. And the fourth is we need to solve the long-term issue of leadership succession. The reason I mention that is it speak, speaks to me that Deng understood that there's a, a, a deep political logic or a, a center of gravity that China's political system pulls leaders to, right? And, and outside all the normal um, constraints on power that we have in other political systems, like checks and balances, division, divisions of power, uh, external supervision through the media, voting so you can regularly change political leaders, that it sort of tends to move this, this way back to a centralization of, of power. Um, and so I just tend to think, uh, uh, even if, if uh, she was replaced with, uh, you know, with, with uh, Liu He, um, given enough time and, and outside those constraints on power, you know, anyone who's seen Lord of the Rings knows, you know, power is quite tempting. Um, you know, dropping that ring and, and, and melting it is, is very difficult, as Frodo found out. So I think this speaks to a, a, a larger problem of political power. All right, I think we're going to close it there, and we are going to do our final vote. This has really been a, a terrific session. So I'm going to ask all of you again, pick up your clickers. Please do vote. You only get A or B. Um, please don't vote anything else, and let's see if we can narrow that gap. While everybody is uh, voting, um, I want to take this opportunity to thank my staff at uh, China Power, 
this kind of conference is truly a team effort, um, and uh, all of my staff has really put in uh, a great deal of effort. Uh, my senior fellow, Dr. Matthew Funioli, um, in front, uh, right in the back running our slides is uh, Brian Hart, my research assistant, and uh, unfortunately downstairs uh, greeting our State Department official uh, is my uh, program coordinator and research associate, uh, Kelly Flaherty, and I'm deeply grateful uh, to all of them, as well as my interns who are running the microphones around today and signed you all in downstairs, and uh, they also make a terrific contribution uh, to all of what we do uh, at, uh, at China Power. So we are voting on the proposition Xi Jinping will face a leadership challenge by 2025. Um, we started out with 35% um, in favor and 64% uh, uh, against. And so we now have 53% in favor and 46%. So I always like it when there's a total flip. We get what, very rarely get a total flip. <laughs> But uh, we're, uh, we're, we're still voting. We're going to give, give another couple of minutes. But uh, it, does, it does look like um, people have reconsidered their, their thoughts on this. To everyone, the, the checks are in the mail for all of you who have voted. A, you have they're coming, I promise. Or yes, they're blank checks, however. Um, okay. Um, it's a little bit this, closer. This Russian voting system we bought is great, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> Um, we, uh, anybody else? We're going to give you another 10 seconds before we, uh, we lock in uh, our vote here. Um, uh, we, we put these all up on, the, uh, on, our, on our website, too, so that people can see the results later on. But uh, this, is, this has been a, a terrific debate. I'm, uh, I'm very grateful uh, to Drew Blanchett, my colleague. I guess I have to watch and Star Wars more closely. <laughs> Maybe that's right. I don't know if it's Star Wars. All right. Um, thank you all. Um, please join me in thanking uh, Professor and uh, Drew Blanchett.